We turn the Bible this evening to Acts chapter 27. Let's read together the chapter, Acts 27. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. And entering into a ship of Adamidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica being with us, And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmoni, and, hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, Loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat, which, when they had taken up, They used helps undergirding the ship and, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strake sail, and so were driven. And we being exceedingly tossed with the tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and says, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete 
and to have gained this harm and loss. And now, I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and found it twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. We were in all in the ship two hundred, threescore, and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded if it were possible to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoist up the mainsail to the wind and made to shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. <clears throat> this is the inspired word of God. May he bless it to our hearts. 
The text for the sermon tonight is the whole chapter. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 27 recounts Paul's perilous voyage through the Mediterranean Sea on his way to Rome. In the preceding chapters, we learn that Paul had been in Jerusalem having finished his three missionary journeys, and there the Jews accused him of crimes against the state and the Jewish religion. And ultimately, the Jews wanted Paul dead because of the Christ that he preached. So in the preceding chapters, we find the apostle being examined before and defending himself before the Jewish mob, the Jewish Sanhedrin, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. So that Acts chapter 26 concludes with the words, Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. In insisting upon his innocence, defending himself, Paul had appealed to Caesar. So now Agrippa says, To Caesar in Rome you will go. Acts 27 then is the account of that harrowing journey on the ship through the Mediterranean Sea and how God preserved and protected the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 28, the rest of the story and how he arrived safely in Rome. Acts chapter 27 is fascinating. It's a story. It's one of those gripping stories of the Bible all full of all kinds of vivid and very descriptive details. In fact, when you read it, you almost get transported back some 2,000 years and you can almost feel the spray of the waves and hear the howling winds as the boat rocks to and fro on the Mediterranean Sea. A gripping story masterfully told And there are many like it in the Bible, but with all stories in the Scripture, it's not merely a collection of names and places and facts and events. It is the revelation of the God of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And the word of the Gospel comes out of Acts 27 to you and me tonight. You and I are on our voyage through time on our way to the safe harbor of heaven ahead. And we don't know exactly how the voyage will go and whether the weather will be fair or furious. In fact, quite often, there are many perils and it can get very dark and the winds can howl. Violent storms on our voyage. But be of good cheer. The Lord God is with you and me. He's with each one of His own. And He's with His church. And He will lead us safely through the storms all the way to the harbor of heaven. Let's consider Acts 27 tonight, the whole of the chapter, an extraordinary number of verses, and therefore we will not be able to reread every verse, comment on every phrase, explain every doctrine, every implication, every application. But let's set forth the main story of Acts 27 and then draw out the main themes and doctrines and unite them, tie them together. 
So Acts 27 we take as our theme Paul's perilous voyage. Noticing first of all the voyage of peril. Second, the faith of Paul. And third, the providence of God. In the first eight verses, we learn of the rather uneventful beginning of this voyage. The people involved are Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, Luke, who is the Christian doctor writing this story by inspiration, and we find him in the chapter under the personal pronoun we, Aristarchus, a Christian brother from Thessalonica, Julius, a Roman centurion with his soldiers, and a number of prisoners who are on their way to Rome, probably for execution, perhaps in the gladiatorial shows. The opening verses of the chapter teach us that these men boarded a ship in Palestine and they sailed northwest, finally coming to Asia Minor. And there they hopped along the coast one stop after another, until finally they came to the city of Myra. And it's there that Julius secured an Alexandrian grain ship. This was a massive ship transporting grain out of Alexandria, Egypt, all the way to the capital of the empire, Rome, which had a population of over one million people. The ship was so large, we learn in verse 37, that in addition to all of the cargo, the tons of cargo that it carried, there were 276 people aboard. So the ship left Asia Minor up in the north and it started sailing south, leaving the protection of the coast. It aimed for Crete, the big island, in the middle of the Mediterranean, between Palestine on the east, the destination of Italy on the west. And they came toward Crete and went below on the south side of the island to hug the shore and have protection from the island of Crete. So far, especially as they come to fair havens, so fair. But in verses 9-19, through we read of the great peril of the voyage. Verse 9 tells us that the fast was passed, and that refers to a fast associated with the Day of Atonement, which puts us late in the year. Winter is coming, and therefore it's dangerous. So according to verses 10 and 11, Paul, who was a very experienced traveler, admonished the crew and the soldiers, saying, it's far too dangerous for us to keep pressing on. We will jeopardize the lading, all the contents of the ship. We will jeopardize this very valuable ship itself and then all of our lives. We must stop now for winter. They didn't listen. Verses 12-15 through tell us that Fairhavens was not commodious a place to spend the winter either for the ship or the passengers. So the men agree that they will hug the island of Crete, but keep pressing westward. The winds are soft, the weather is fair, and so off they go and it appears to be going very well. But, verse 14, all of a sudden, Eurachlodon. Eurachlodon is the name that the sailors gave to those violent winds from the northeast that would come swooping down off the mountains of Crete 
and hit the sea on the south side of Crete and stir up the waters, creating violent storms. So here comes Eurachlodon, and it takes that massive Alexandrian grain ship and it throws it out to sea. And the sailors are absolutely helpless. They have to surrender and say, have thy own way, Eurachlodon, have thy own way. And so the storm tosses the ship to and fro. According to verse 16, they would soon come under the mild protection of a little island called Clauda, about 23 miles from Crete. And it's there. With great difficulty, they were able to reach down over the side of the ship and draw up that little lifeboat, hoist it up, and put the lifeboat on the ship. Verse 17 tells us that the storm intensified. So this massive ship is made up of all these big wood planks and they use ropes and cables to try to undergird and strengthen the ship lest they run into rocks or some sandbar or the ship be beaten by the violent waves. Then they strake sail, meaning they lowered the drift anchors. Verses 18 and 19 tells us they were exceedingly tossed. So in order to lighten the ship, that they might be able to ride more on the top of the waves and stop taking in so much water, they decide to have everyone take the tackling. That's all their gear. The beds, the tables, the, the furnishings, the chests. Everyone grabs something and they pitch it all overboard into the Mediterranean. Can't you picture these frantic sailors? This massive ship is rising with the wave and crashing back down and rising with another wave. The waves are pounding against the ship. Water is spraying everywhere. The winds are howling. The deck of the ship had to be slippery. They're all slipping and sliding, grabbing gear, throwing it overboard. Indeed, it was a perilous journey. But they still had hope. After the first few days, they still had hope of reaching land. The climax comes in verses 20 through 26 in this perilous voyage, verse 20. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Hopelessness. It's one thing to be lost. It's another thing to be lost at sea. Not only were all the dark whirling clouds blotting out the sky, it was black, no sun by day, they couldn't even find one star by night. It was black. No sense of time. No sense of direction. No light whatsoever. Not only were the winds howling and the waves smashing against the ship, but they're at sea. It's one thing to be lost in the mountains. It's one thing to be lost in the forest, even in a storm. But even then, of your own will, you get to determine in which direction you will move, north or south or east or west. But when you're lost at sea in a storm, you surrender. You have no solid ground. You don't get to determine your direction. And Eurachlodon was tossing them all over the sea. All hope 
that they should be saved was taken away. They were cold and wet and numbed and fatigued. When's the last time they had a meal? The ship's taking on more and more water and everyone knows it. Very soon, it's going down. 276 men on board and the ship is going down. Hopelessness. But. 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me, howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. There's always hope with our God who is the God of hope. Verses 27 to the end describe the final portion and the end of this perilous journey. As the boat is being driven back and forth in Adria, that's the Adriatic Sea between Greece and Italy, by the 14th night they can sense it. We're getting close to land. They can tell that by the way they hear the waves breaking. And so they, so they start sounding. They start measuring the water depth and it's 20 fathoms, 120 feet. A little while later, it's 15 fathoms, 90 feet. It's getting shallower. And so they cast in the anchors and they wish for a new day. It's at that point that the worthless, selfish soldier or crew, the sailors on the ship, decide to abandon. And so under the guise of letting down the anchors, they let down that little lifeboat into the sea. So they can hop in and make a beeline for shore. Paul sees what's happening and he cries out to Julius and the soldiers, Stop them! Stop them! Except these soldiers remain, we cannot be saved. And so Julius has the soldiers run over there. They snip the ropes and the little lifeboat falls down into the sea and drifts away. Verses 38, rather 33 through 38 tell us that Paul then exhorted the men to eat because of all of the pandemonium they hadn't eaten for 14 days, two weeks. Now, probably a bite here or a bite there, but they hadn't had a meal. What a voyage, a perilous voyage. And so Paul breaks bread, and then, of course, we should have opening devotions. And so in the presence of all these ungodly men, including prisoners, murderers, thieves, Paul calls upon the name of the Lord his God, thanks God for the food. They break the bread, the men eat, their bellies are full. Their countenance is cheered. And after eating, they took all the rest of the wheat and they threw it overboard into the sea. Verses 39 and following tell us that the next day they discovered a small inlet and so they started working those massive sails 
on the ship so the wind could drive that ship into this inlet and it finally ran aground, the front end sticking fast in the sand. And then the waves just beat the back end of the ship and smashed it to pieces. The soldiers who are responsible for all of these prisoners become alarmed. They don't want the prisoners to escape under their watch. So they order that all of the prisoners be killed, which would mean that Paul would be killed. But Julius stopped them and said, no, everyone to land. And so anyone who could swim jumped overboard and swam to land. Those who couldn't swim jumped overboard and others would help them find a piece of debris, a piece of plank, and they kicked their way to shore. And they all made it. They made it safely to land so that after everyone arrived, they would do a head count and find 276 men accounted for. They soon discovered they had not reached the mainland, their destination of Italy. They were on an island, a little island called Melita. Somehow, there was this little dot in the vast Mediterranean Sea called an Alexandrian grain ship. And there was another little teeny tiny dot in the Mediterranean called the island of Melita. And somehow, the dots connected. Now, they were on land. You can read Acts 28 to hear the rest of the story and how they made it from Melita to Rome in this perilous journey. Acts 27 teaches us about faith. The faith that God gave to Paul. The faith expressed in verse 25, for I believe God. Faith, what it is, and the Christian life that flows out of faith. Two lessons from Acts 27. Let's begin with the latter. Lesson number one. In all the affairs of this life, the believer who has true faith, conducts himself responsibly. To be a little more specific, and we'll come to this, he understands God uses means. The lesson, the believer who has true faith lives out of that faith, conducting himself responsibly. That is, true faith as it is exhibited here by the Apostle Paul does not make the believer careless and negligent, and lazy in all of the affairs of life so that he says, I trust God and God is sovereign. And because my life is in God's hands, I don't need to make any decisions. I don't need to perform any deeds. God will take me like grain on the ship and carry me all the way to heaven. Rather, the believer who has true faith in God is so thankful to God for all of His salvation that he lives out of his faith in obedience and wisdom and diligence and carefulness faithfully and responsibly as a steward of the time, the possessions, the friends, 
the life, the opportunity that he has. True faith behaves itself responsibly in the affairs of life. Now there are two illustrations of that lesson. Number one, Paul at Fairhaven's saying, stop. Admonishing all aboard. This ship must stop now for winter. Paul was a prisoner. Paul was not the captain. Paul was not a centurion. Paul was not a sailor. Paul was only a prisoner. But Paul had experience and Paul had wisdom. Paul had logged over 4,000 miles at sea on his missionary journeys. And Paul had suffered three shipwrecks previously. Paul knew it was foolish to try to leave the island of Crete at Fairhavens and press westward during the winter with all of the storms that would be coming. So what did Paul do? Did he say, God is sovereign. I trust in God. Period. Paul spoke up and he admonished them, we must stop now. The believer who has faith in God lives out of that faith by conducting himself responsibly. You might see danger ahead at home, at church, in the consistory room, at school, on the school board, at work, in the office. God gives us knowledge and God gives us experience Maybe you are, let's say, on the school board, and this isn't your first term. 15, 20 years ago, you were also on the school board. You've seen a lot of things. God's given you a lot of knowledge. And now you see something coming, something dangerous, and you don't say, well, God is sovereign and I trust Him, period. But you speak up and say, brothers, this is a dangerous course we are on. We need to stop. We need a new course. True faith in all the affairs of this life behaves itself responsibly. The second illustration of that main truth is found in Paul's insistence the sailors remain and the travelers eat. When land was first spotted, those worthless sailors tried to get down into that lifeboat and row themselves to shore to escape. And that's when Paul makes that remarkable statement in verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Except these sailors remain, ye cannot be saved. Now, what makes that statement of the Apostle so remarkable is that according to verses 22 and 24, God has just told him through the word of the angel, you, Paul, and every single person on this ship will make it safely all the way to Rome. And what does Paul do with that knowledge? Does he go down into the bottom of the ship and go to sleep and say, God is sovereign. He's promised me we will all make it safely to Rome. All is well. Paul sees these sailors trying to escape and he says, stop them. 
We need these sailors or we cannot be saved. The sailors must remain. You see, the Apostle knows God has ordained the end. And God has promised the end. God has revealed something of His secret counsel to Paul so that Paul knows the end God has ordained. But Paul also knows that God has ordained means unto the end. And that God is pleased to use means to bring about the end. The end is safety in Rome for everyone on that ship. The means? These sailors whom God will yet use to work these massive sails and to drive this ship yet to avoid the rocks and the sand and bring us to shore. Responsibly, he behaved himself. The sailors must remain. And the travelers must eat. Verses 33 and 34. Again, Paul knows everyone aboard the ship will survive. And yet the means to that end of a safe arrival in Rome is everyone on board eating. Being nourished and strengthened with food so that they can work those sails. And eventually, they'll have to jump overboard and swim all the way to the island. Means ordained to the end. Now, should you encounter a perilous storm in your life, trust God and persist in the means. God will preserve your soul through the means of the preaching of the Gospel. Through the means of personal devotions with the Word and prayer. Through the means of the fellowship and support of the body of Christ. Through the means of good advice and counsel from elders, from family and friends. Do not forsake the church. Do not forsake the Gospel. Do not forsake devotions in the Word and the fellowship of the body and the good advice of brothers and sisters and office bearers in God's church. Don't try to go live by yourself in isolation somewhere and say, God is sovereign and God will preserve me. Use the means that God has ordained. And materially, don't try to live without food and drink and bodily exercise, and sleep, and maybe medicine or even a surgery as necessary, and say, God will take care of me. God has ordained means for the health of the body. And when it comes to the salvation of sinners from the peril of the everlasting lake of fire, no reformed man who believes in sovereign, eternal election will say, we don't need to do mission work. And we don't need to evangelize. And we don't need to witness to those who are ungodly. And I don't need to admonish the wayward because of election. All who are elected will be saved. And all who have been reprobated, they will be destroyed. God is pleased to use means to accomplish His will. The text gives illustrations. Here's the main truth. God gives the believer faith so that the believer believes in God. 
He loves the God of His salvation. He's thankful for His salvation. And then He lives out of that faith in a Christian life by conducting Himself responsibly in all the affairs of life as a good steward of everything that God has given and understanding that God uses means to accomplish His will. We see that in the conduct of Paul the believer. And the second main lesson we learn of the faith of the Apostle Paul concerns faith itself and that faith is confident trust. Complete trust in God. Altogether apart now from Paul's faith in the word of the angel and any other explicit reference to faith in the chapter, the whole chapter from the very beginning to the very end, sets forth so beautifully Paul's faith that stands out, that jumps out at the reader. Paul's confidence. This is a perilous voyage. And yet Paul is so calm. Nowhere do we read of Paul shrieking in terror and in desperation. We're all going to die. And what's the use of pressing on now in the midst of Eurachlodon? From beginning to end, Paul is confident in the will of God. Paul is confident that he is in the hand of God, his Father. For God has given Paul faith, and God continues to strengthen that faith. And through the whole of Paul's life of peril, God has strengthened his faith more and more. Paul, you understand, lived in peril. How many times was he beaten and stoned and shipwrecked. He has this thorn in his flesh. Most recently, he was in Jerusalem. And the Jews literally tried to, tried to rip him to shreds. There were 40 men who plotted. They made a vow saying, I will not eat and I will not drink until that man Paul is dead. His whole life was a life of peril. And God has taught him to trust in Him. So that... Paul is confident in God, even now in the midst of a storm on the Mediterranean Sea. For me, Paul, to live on the sea is Christ. If I should die, it is gain. He trusts in God. And nowhere does that confident trust shine brighter than in Paul's response to the decision at Fairhaven's no. No, Paul. We're pressing on. And off goes the ship. Paul knows it is foolish. Paul has advised against it. But no one will listen. And now what does Paul do as the storm comes up? Does he walk around the deck of the ship seething in bitterness and anger? Why didn't you listen to me? Is he full of despair and sulking on the ship? We're all going to die now in this storm of death. Paul trusts God. Yes, he will reprove those men and admonish them, but really, that's only to introduce unto them the comforting and encouraging word of the angel. Paul trusts God. Even when others behave themselves irresponsibly, when others are negligent, when others take that ship and they will that it set forward on the way to Rome in the winter season and here comes the storm. Even then, when Paul's will is frustrated by God, why are we going forward? Even then, Paul 
trusts God. God will take care of us. And then notice especially his faith according to verses 22 through 25. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. And that must have been, that must have sounded ridiculous to everyone. They're in the midst of a storm. There's no hope. And Paul says, everyone will be safe, except for the ship. Everyone aboard will be safe. For, verse 23, there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. God, whose I am and whom I serve. And here you see the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, Paul, am God's. On this ship, I am God's. Because from all eternity in the decree of election, I am God's. Because I am Christ's. Right now, I, Paul, who used to blaspheme and persecute Christians, I am Christ. And Jesus Christ had laid down His life for me. He's covered all of my iniquity. He is my righteousness before God. And He has earned for me faith. And He has given to me this precious gift of faith. In fact, He has taken me by His Spirit and united me to Himself. I, Paul, am bone of Christ's bones. I, Paul, am flesh of Christ's flesh. Whether I live or whether I die, I am Christ's. And because I am Christ, I'm God's. God whose I am. And God whom I serve. Because the Spirit of Christ dwells within me and makes me sincerely willing and ready in all things to live unto God. God whose I am and whom I serve. Verse 24, saying, Fear not, said the angel, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be, even as it was told me. God has given Paul faith so that he's not on the ship living by sight and feel and experience, staggering in unbelief. God has spoken. And Paul says, I believe God. I take Him at His word. We will all make it safe to roam. Paul's faith. Faith is confident trust in God. Now thank God tonight if you have faith. How many people on that ship had faith? Paul, Luke, Aristarchus. 276. How many had faith? How many have faith? The world over. Thank God if you have been given that most precious gift of faith so that you can say from the heart, I believe God. No matter how perilous your voyage may be or become, and no matter how dark it gets, and though it may appear that all hope that you should be saved has been lost, trust God. Faith. Faith in God. Faith in what? In God. 
God who does what? God who is what? And now we come to the deepest and fundamental truth of Acts 27. The providence of God. What undergirds Acts 27 is God's providence. What undergirds Paul in his faith? That is, what is the content of Paul's faith? That in which Paul believes is God in His providence. That's Acts 27. The providence of God, which is His sovereign power whereby He governs everything in the universe. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us in Lord's Day 10 to think of the figure of a hand. Providence is God's hand. God is the sovereign of the sea. And His providence governs ships, rudders, sails, anchors, ropes, a lifeboat with oars, winds, waves, the sun, stars, ports, harbors, cargo, Julius and his heart, Eurachlodon, the hearts of all of the captains and soldiers who say, no, let's press on. The hairs of every single man on the ship and the connecting of those two dots. Providence. God's sovereign power. And providence always serves God's saving covenantal purposes in Jesus Christ. And in Acts 27, providence serves Christ in Rome. For what purpose does God govern everything at sea? Verse 24, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. That's God's eternal counsel. Paul, you must be brought before Caesar. All of God's providence serves that purpose. Paul before Caesar. Why Paul before Caesar? In order to answer that question, you need to know the book of Acts. It's coming very close to its conclusion. The book of Acts teaches that your Lord Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven as the Lord of lords and the King of kings and He poured out His Holy Spirit upon the church so that the church then sends out the apostles. And now we have the Acts of the Apostles as they are filled with the Spirit of Christ and they will bring the Gospel. They will bring the name of Christ. They will bring the banners of Christ into the nations out of Judea and Samaria and Galilee to the uttermost parts of the world. The name of Jesus will be named by the mouthpieces of Jehovah into all the world so that all of the elect can hear, be brought to saving faith and saved and bow down before King Jesus. And all of the reprobate who hear the Gospel can be hardened unto everlasting destruction. But how far will the Gospel go? Will it make it into Asia Minor? Will it make it into what we know today as Europe? Will the Gospel 
through the mouthpiece of Jehovah filled by the Spirit of Jesus make it all the way to that which is the pinnacle of the power and glory of the whole world in the capital city of Rome where Caesar reigns. Will the Gospel make it to Paul to Rome through the apostles? Providence. God is the sovereign of the seas. Providence. Governing all things. And Paul, through the Mediterranean, God giving him faith, God causing him to live out of his faith, leading Paul all the way, finally, to Rome. Why? So that the name of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the victory of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus Christ may be declared by His ways are higher than ours. Whoever would have thought it, when you go back to the beginning of the book, His ways are higher than ours. Not by the missionary. He's now a prisoner that the name of Jesus may be named by the Spirit-filled prisoner in Rome before Caesar and his household, the capital of the world. Providence serves the naming of Jesus in Rome. Providence controls rudders. Providence controls winds for the sake of the advancement of the Gospel and name of Jesus and for the gathering, defense, and preservation of the church of Jesus. Providence. Now, how is your voyage going? Are the winds of God's providence proving contrary so that your body, your marriage, your home, your church, your school is subjected to pounding waves and fierce, violent winds. And you say, where? Where is their land? Where is their refuge? Where is there a haven of rest in this violent, perilous storm? Maybe you'll find yourself this week watching your loved one being loaded into the back of an ambulance and you'll hear the medic say that all hope that he should be saved has been taken away. Or maybe you say today I have a very secure job and I just had my physical. I got the report back from the doctor. Everything's clear and I feel good besides and tomorrow morning, Eurachlodon, the Eurachlodon of adversity. And pretty soon you're flat on your back up in the hospital for the next six to eight weeks. Or maybe you see a crisis of some sort looming and you stand up and you speak up and say, brothers, sisters, we need to chart another course and no one listens. Now we have a crisis. How is your voyage going? Two things in conclusion. Number one, providence. Providence. Faith in the God of providence. 
providence, God's government of everything. God is not only the sovereign of the seas, He's the sovereign of your body. Every single cell, every germ in your immune system. God is the sovereign of the state, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. He governs them. God is the sovereign of the field, every seed, every drop of rain, and every grain. God is the sovereign of the economy. He governs inflation. He governs stock market volatility. He governs stimulus packages. He's sovereign. And He's the sovereign of the home, your home tonight. And He's the sovereign of the school, your school, and the sovereign of the church, your church. God's providence. And number two, God's providence always serves His saving covenantal purposes in Jesus Christ. And so, be of good cheer. Yes, you. You. Be of good cheer. God will work everything on your voyage together for your good and for the preservation of His church and for the spread of His Gospel. Be of good cheer. Don't say it. I'm going down. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm going down. No, you are not. But I am. In this perilous storm, my voyage through the seas of adversity, where is safety and rest in a haven? I'm going down at sea. No, you're not. You will not, child of God, you will not suffer the shipwreck of your faith because God safely holds your soul in life and steadfast makes your way. He governs the perils for your good in Christ. You're not going down. You're in His hand. Be of good cheer. We must pass through many storms on our voyage to heaven and that shouldn't surprise anyone because so did your Lord. You don't know Eurachlodon. I don't know Eurachlodon. Paul does not know Eurachlodon. Neither does Luke or Aristarchus. No man really knows Eurachlodon until you have gone to Golgotha and you have by faith entered into the mysteries of the Gospel and beheld the Eurachlodon of God's wrath, His just wrath, as the winds and the waves pounded, as it were, against your head, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. You want to talk darkness and terror and peril? Christ in body and soul. All the might of the Eurachlodon of God's wrath against Him for all of our sins. And He bore it. And He bore it all away. And He is our righteousness before God. So that for Jesus' sake, you will pass through this perilous voyage and make it safely to the haven of heaven. If you are not in Jesus Christ, if anyone here lives in unbelief, 
and you are stubbornly persisting in impenitence, you're going down. You are going down. And it's a lake of everlasting fire. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus is there safety. For Jesus' sake, God, by His providence, will work all things together for our good. And your hope is not in your faith because our faith is often so weak. Our hope is in God Almighty, the Sovereign of the seas, who gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are now and forever. For Jesus' sake, you will make it to glory. This God is our God, and He will be our guide even unto death. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy word of hope, and we pray that our hearts may be strengthened and encouraged so that out of the heart and across the tongue comes a new song of praise. Oh, that men would praise Thee for Thy goodness. May we grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.